0: The reading is from John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, and is on page 877 of your Pew Bible. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Word of God, word of life, thanks be to God. So it is the
1: fifth week of the season of Easter, that week of weeks, seven weeks, when the church celebrates the resurrection of our Lord, and yet Our text for today comes from the part of John's Gospel when Jesus hasn't even died yet. But it does make sense, because Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. He's about to die on a cross, then rise from that real death, and then ascend away from them, away from earth itself, to be with God. John's gospel from its beginning has been rooted in the amazing good news that God is with us. The word became flesh and lived among us. Like that's the first big and most important claim John wants to make to all of us. Well, the disciples have had a hard enough time trying to figure out what that means, that Jesus is God with us. How much more confused are they going to be when God with us dies, rises, and then ascends. It's a lot. So Jesus has a conversation with his disciples that shines light on what it all means. We 2,000 years later, even on this side of Easter, still struggle with what this all means. What does it mean for us that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus ascended? Like, how is that good news for us and not just for him? Like for us in our now, as people of faith in 2023, what do we still have to do? Are there words we still need to say? Is there a particular place we have to go to say those words? Is there a certain kind of person I or maybe we need to be in order to have resurrection happen for me or for us? In order to go to heaven? in order to be with God, in order to be saved, or however it is you want to say it. Because the world works pretty predictably, pretty consistently with things like this. If you want something, you got to earn it, right? Or maybe not earn it. Some of us get stuff just by being lucky. Or, or maybe both. Maybe you have to be both. Maybe you have to earn it and be lucky. You want Taylor Swift tickets, for example? They don't just happen, you register for like a lottery number, you wait in an online queue for hours, maybe even days, then you got to pay a lot of money once your number comes up and even after. Maybe you're fortunate enough to procure tickets. Well, then you got to think about what needs to be done to fully enjoy those tickets, right? Is there something I should wear? What albums should I be listening to in order to experience this concert concert in its fullest? How early should I arrive at the venue? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? What do I need to be? Who do I need to be in order to make the most of my really hard-to-get, really expensive Taylor Swift tickets? These are questions a friend of mine actually has been asking himself, because his daughter is like, we got to go, and they got tickets, and so he's like, well, what do, I, what do I have to do? And yes, I'm making the analogy that scoring Swifty tickets is like going to heaven, but Actually, I hope you hear me say, it's actually the exact opposite of that. I'll get there. So the disciples were not Swifties. They maybe would be. But anyway, the world worked then just like it does now. Nothing just falls from the sky. In this life, in this world, you got to go get it. You got to achieve, produce, possess, succeed. Go, 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 right? Jump through the hoops, know the right people. Definitely say the right things, do the right things, and you'll still probably need to be a little lucky here or there to get whatever it is you want. Well, that must be how heaven works. That must be how achieving a with God eternal status works, right? To that, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, so remember that. That's how this text opens for today. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Remember that for when we get to the no one comes to the Father except through me part. Because this whole text, we got to remember, for every little part, every line, every verse, this whole text starts with Jesus trying to calm his disciples down. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And the key to untroubling our hearts, he says, believe in God, believe in me. The disciples are under the impression that in order to know God, which is their goal, heaven is with God, they're under the impression to have salvation, to go to heaven, they think they need more information from Jesus. They think Jesus is the guy who can help them get to where they want to go. Pay close enough attention to what Jesus is teaching, maybe they'll get it. They believe life is a test. And to pass that test, they're going to need to soak up what Jesus says. They're going to need to see and understand what Jesus does and then maybe they too can get their ticket punched if they do all the right things and say the right things. Now the reason their hearts are troubled is because just before our text for today, Jesus has told the disciples he's going to be leaving. They're like, "You're leaving?" Not yet. We don't we don't get it yet. So Jesus gets explicit that he's not just some guru that's showing them the way. He's not just teaching about the truth of God's love. He's not promising the idea of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, and you do, You know my father also. From now on, you do know him, have seen him. Ta da! Like maybe he should have said that. Maybe he should have said, Ta da. Because that would make this easier to understand, actually. I'm gonna actually add that in. Here I need to pause for a second to say more about the I am statements of John's gospel. There are seven major ones and each time jesus says i am he's signaling the very presence of god like this isn't the first time he's tried to make this connection for everybody i am is the name god used with moses right way back in the old testament from the burning bush when moses asks well, who shall i say sent me when jesus says things like i am the bread of life i am the light of the world i am the gate and if you were here for worship a couple of weeks ago, you might remember when he says, I am the gate, it's not, I'm the gate that remains closed to the world except for the people I like best. He's saying, I'm the gate that remains open for my sheep to go find pasture during the day and then, you know, keep them protected by night. Like, I'm a, I'm a good gate. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Whenever he says I am, he's signaling to whoever's listening that the very presence of God is I am. A presence that provides and feeds and sustains and loves. All those I am statements are very gracious. The disciples are still in the process of coming to faith and seeing what I am means. They haven't completely put it together yet. Remember, John's gospel is all about the process of coming to discipleship. A bunch of stuff is about to happen. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. So Jesus wants to make the I am point as crystal clear as he can in this farewell teaching time so that their hearts become untroubled, We haven't done enough. We haven't seen enough. We don't know enough. We aren't enough. You can't go yet. And so Jesus basically says, oh, good news. It's not about you. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. Jesus tells them, yeah, I'm going away. But where I'm going, I go to prepare a place for you. So that's good. Maybe that'll untrouble their hearts. But Thomas, he's trying to put it together. He wants to know, and where is that that you're going? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way if we don't even know where there is? Give us directions or show us a map or draw us a diagram or something. You, Jesus, are our key so that we can get in the door. You show us the way. You explain the truth. You lead us to life. Of course, you know we have to follow your lead. We have to trust the truth. We have to obey your way. We have to do things to open the door. We have to say the right things. We have to be the right things because that's, of course, how the world works, right, Jesus? That's why our hearts are so troubled because if you're leaving, we're not ready. We're not even sure what things we have to do or say or be. And that's when Jesus says it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That you know me is the place The destination is a relationship with me. Ta-da! The way isn't a path you have to figure out that's got booby traps and obstacles and tests and temptations all along the way where, oh, we hope X marks the spot or Jesus marks the spot or something like that. The, The truth isn't a riddle that we have to get right. The life isn't a lifestyle that is either lived correctly or incorrectly that gets us to achieve or earn what we want or not. I am, he says, the way, the truth, and the life. And it might have been better had that been the end of what Jesus said, because what he says next got twisted by much of the church forevermore. Still does get. In a moment when Jesus was trying to untrouble their hearts After another grace-filled I am saying, which in every other instance is always an indication of the presence of God's love and mercy and inclusion. So you'd think the next thing Jesus is going to say is going to be a further description of love and mercy and inclusion because that's why the word became flesh to begin with. The next thing Jesus says is, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So it's been a conversation between Jesus and the disciples where Jesus wants them to see that he's in the Father and the Father's in him. It's meant to comfort these friends of Jesus who've been following him for years. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're doing it. Like that's what he's saying to these disciples. He's saying there's no more for you to do. You already know me. You're there. You're doing it already. You are with God right now. Caroline Lewis, my favorite John scholar, if you haven't noticed, because I think I've noted her in pretty much every John text I've preached on lately, she says, these are meant to be words of comfort, not condition. And condition is how so many have interpreted these lines. But think about how that interpretation, to make this into a conditional thing, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the text or the rest of the gospel. If you know me, you'll know my Father also. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, if we take this as a condition, well, it's not like he turns aside from Thomas and Philip in this conversation like a, like a soliloquy in a Shakespearean play to actually speak to the crowd for a moment. I know in this scene you've seen me trying to untrouble their hearts, but Let me turn aside for a moment to you who are reading this many years later so that I may invoke in you the fear of God. I may be trying to calm them down right now in this scene, preparing them for my ascension, but I'm trying to scare you, reader, into believing in me, not by being a good shepherd or the bread of life or the light of the world. I know I said all that before, but now in John 14, I'm revealing the actual way of things. It turns out I am the bottleneck, the hurdle. The eye of the needle. And if you can't figure out how to thread me, well, then let your hearts be troubled. It just it doesn't work to make this conditional. Now, I've had to do this the last few times I've preached on John, to not only point out the good news, in this case, that knowing Jesus is heaven, participating in the community of Christ, being part of a family of faith whose faith is Jesus' faith is heaven. But I've also needed to expose the bad news that so many have preached from John for so long. Sadly, the church has oftentimes lifted these couple verses from the caring conversation Jesus is having with Thomas and Philip as proof for the judgment of God, how God excludes, and how God chooses to be absent from those who do not make the right efforts to come to God through Jesus. They are texts that have been used by nations to colonize other peoples. They're texts that have been used by priests and preachers and pastors to scare people into coming to church. You know, there's no way to God except through Jesus.